When Scott Walker was elected Wisconsin governor in 2010, he promised to fix the state's broken budget and lead limited government reforms that would get the Badger State's economy working again. By just about any metric, the two-term Republican governor has succeeded. Described as one of the two most consequential governors in state history, Walker presided over a wave of far-reaching conservative reforms. Today, the MacGyver Institute looks back at a remarkable era in Wisconsin history in our special presentation, The Walker Years, a legacy of conservative reforms, on News Talk 1130 WISN. As the crowd swelled inside and outside the state capitol, and the protesters sprayed Republicans with spit, insults, and hatred, Governor Scott Walker could be forgiven for having a moment of pause, for asking himself if it was all worth it. In February 2011, a little more than a month into his first term, the state capitol was under siege by demonstrators, mostly led by public sector unions, angry that they were about to lose their favored seat at the negotiating table. All because Walker had the gall to acknowledge the state's $3.6 billion budget deficit and the systemic fiscal illness it faced couldn't be fixed by more taxpayer-funded bailouts. Walker came in with a plan to fix the mess he had inherited. His budget repair bill, also known as Act 10, would not be well received by big labor and their big government friends. We have both an economic and fiscal crisis in the state. When it comes to the fiscal crisis, uh, the reality is that we have to get uh, this current budget, uh, the soon to be forthcoming budget, and budgets for decades to come in line. We can no longer kick the can to the future. Uh, that's just unacceptable. Act 10 included a number of measures. Its most controversial provisions reformed Wisconsin's old public sector collective bargaining law, which over the years gave unions an outsized seat at the contract negotiation table, often making taxpayers an afterthought. Act 10 holds government job wages to the rate of inflation and requires public employees pay more or something into their taxpayer-funded insurance and pension plans. It also ends forced union membership and dues. Wisconsin suddenly became the last stand for the dying national organized labor movement. Walker Chief of Staff Eric Schutt said the new administration and Republican lawmakers had no idea what they were getting themselves into, but they agreed on the importance of the fight. It was almost one of those too big to fail moments. There, there weren't a lot of other choices out there mm -hmm. in terms of what you needed to do when the rest of the economy was where it was at, unemployment close to 10%. Remember, this was at a point in time when the private sector was telling their employees, you're going to have to pay more for health care. And oh, by the way, we may have to get rid of your 401k. Yeah. So to sit down and look at state government employees and say, this is, you know, everybody needs to share here and what the solution is, seemed like the right thing to do. Um, I, I don't know that we all thought it was going to um, end up getting the response that it ultimately did. Um, but I think also we looked at it and said, this is just, it's the right thing to do. It may be tough. Sometimes the right things aren't the easiest path, uh, but definitely worth it. Lieutenant Governor Rebecca Clayfish says it was time to fix an inherent inequality infused into big government thinking. 
because I honestly believed in what we were doing. I came from the private sector. My husband came from the private sector. The private sector had been enduring a very deep recession. And how fair is it that the only segment of the economy that doesn't go through a recession is government? Mm -hmm. It was uniquely unfair the way things were going. State Representative Dale Coyanga was a freshman lawmaker at the time, part of the Republican revolution that swept into power in 2010. The Brookfield State Representative quickly learned that the 2011-12 session would not be business as usual. Yeah, I was just trying to learn the building. I didn't, I didn't know how the whole collective bargaining thing really worked when I got there. I just remember the lieutenant governor, was, I was trying to get something in this uh, budget repair bill. Like, yeah, I really want to get this provision in there. And uh, it was a good provision that had to do with, like, child welfare. I remember her just being like, oh, I think she actually called me honey. I don't know why. But she's like, oh, honey, you don't <laughs> want to put that in this. This is going to be really – that's such a nice bill. That's such a nice idea. You don't want to put it in this. <laughs> and, um, yeah, and it was, it was uh, quite more dra- much more drama than we expected, and, and the governor led. Mike Hipsch, Walker's first Secretary of Administration, remembers the early conversations he had with Walker and cabinet members about solutions to fix a state budget that had long jumped from crisis to crisis. We knew that that Act 10 was going to be volatile. We knew it was going to be something that was going to be difficult for some people to swallow, but we also knew it absolutely had to be done. We could not continue to afford to go down the path that we were as far as providing 100% coverage for health care for every state employee. We couldn't we couldn't possibly afford to continue to, to fund the, the retirement system that we had it just in, in the pension program. And there, there just things had to change because, you know, the rest of the world had changed. I mean, and so I remember very clearly we're sitting there where we, what we were doing was trying to figure out how we were going to staff all of the positions if, in fact, there was a massive walkout, if, if the state just walked out and the state workers walked out and said, fine, you know, you work, do it on your own. And so we had, we had figured out where we could get people to staff it all. And in the end, the one thing we got to was the municipalities and the, the local fire and police. And that obviously is an essential, uh, an essential service of government. And uh, when we really just couldn't get to a point where we could figure out how in the world we would, we would be able to, to fill in and, and make sure that there was still that kind of support and service, uh, the governor, without batting an eye, said, fine, then we will exempt them from this bill. Knowing that that was going to cause some, some rift, but also knowing that the number one concern, the most important issue that government has to do is provide those essential services that people know that they're paying for and have to have. Right. And fire and police were, was, were among those. Without batting an eye, he knew that was the right decision, and he really didn't have to give it a great deal of thought or angst or anything along those lines. It was those type of things that, of course, became controversial and came, became highly reviewed but were things that he knew from his from his knowledge, from his readings, and from his heart that it was the right thing to do. And that was that's what always got a great deal of allegiance from those who worked with him, and, and certainly from the cabinet, because we knew the governor knew what he was doing. And that's, I mean, when it comes right down to it, that's one of the most important things you need to have, is a leader who knows what they're doing. And Scott Walker was, by all means, in every area, that person. Once he laid out his vision of reform... Walker knew there was no turning back, even as all hell broke loose at the Capitol. The massive demonstrations attracting tens of thousands of protesters and some of the biggest names in liberal politics were like nothing Hipsch and his fellow public servants had seen before.
direction, and we certainly didn't anticipate those type of, of numbers and that type of organized effort to yeah. to turn people out from across the country to come and really make Madison ground zero for for uh, the public public unions and public employee unions uh, basically last stand, which really became kind of their Waterloo, in my opinion. It was just so horribly overplayed, but I mean, we certainly didn't know that at the time. It wasn't just politics. The lieutenant governor says it became all too personal. I also had two little kids at the time. And Joel, as you know, my husband's state representative, Mm -hmm. uh, was on the Joint Finance Committee at the time. And so he traveled the state uh, with the roadshow of people in costume and people with protest signs who would scream and shout. And there was a time when he brought the children to the Capitol. I was busy. Um, I'm always busy. And so Joel had the kids, and he brought them to the Capitol, and the protesters were just merciless, ruthless to them. They were little. Hmm. They were four and seven at that time. And you don't soon forget people who seek to do harm to your children. When we return, resistance turns into a historic recall movement, and limited government leaders dig in. You're listening to the MacGyver Institute's special presentation of The Walker Years, A Legacy of Conservative Reforms, on News Talk 1130 WISN. You're listening to the MacGyver Institute's special presentation of The Walker Years, A Legacy of Conservative Reforms, on News Talk 1130 WISN. I'm Matt Kittle reporting. As the battle over Act 10 intensified, violent rhetoric and actions kicked into overdrive. Lawmakers, the governor, administration officials, all received death threats. Senate Democrats fled the state to stall a final vote on Act 10. Nightly news and cable-talking head shows featured live reports from the Capitol protest, juxtaposed, by design, next to images from the Egyptian Revolution. The mainstream media constructed the early narrative of resistance. State Representative Dale Coenga remembers Walker's firmness throughout, stealing the nerves of Republicans, urging them to not back down. I mean, he came out of that that east wing and down the caucus, and I mean, it was it was quite the moment. I mean, you got to remember this is uh, on the left side. The person that came down was Jesse Jackson. Mm. So you have on the left, you have guys like Jesse Jackson that came to the assembly floor and we're like giving the microphone i'm talking um and so i think when you look at like a governor walker and you're looking at the the um the heat that we were taking from that side um you know that sounds fairly consistent with the type of leadership and the type of mentality that um he started leading on shoot walker's chief of staff said act 10 and the conservative reform certainly kept wisconsin voters interested in politics as as chief of staff, you know it's um, it, it's sometimes easy to be uh, be in here in the Capitol behind the scenes. Act Ten was one of those things where um, you know friends, neighbors, every person had an opinion. 
Um, and I think it is sometimes the um, the way in which people voice those opinions, whether it's to your kids, whether it's, you know, sitting on a soccer sideline. It's, I, I still remember, um, right, the, the parents who would sidle up and, and uh, look to their left and their right, make sure nobody was watching and saying, I really like what you're doing, and then they would go back away for a hmm. while. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I think personally that was a challenging time. That's a point where you had to, to um, everybody did. Really, and, and again, when I say everyone, I don't mean just people in the administration, right? I mean the, the um, supporters from across the state who knew it was tough, but it was the right thing to do. Everybody had to get really thick skin because they knew it wasn't going to be easy. Uh, but it showed that it could happen. No sooner had the legislature passed Act 10 and the governor signed it into law than Democrats and their big labor friends unleashed a massive recall campaign against Walker, Clayfish, and several Republican senators. Most of the Republican senators facing recalls survived. After months of dire predictions from the left and the mainstream media that Walker and Clayfish would be removed from office, conservative and independent voters came out in force in June 2012, casting a vote of confidence for the governor and lieutenant governor and a repudiation of the recall movement. Walker made history becoming the first U.S. governor to survive a recall attempt. We work hard because we want our children to inherit a better life, a better home, a better community, and thanks to your vote today, a better state than the one we inherited. Together, we're going to move Wisconsin forward. Thank you, God bless you, and God bless the great state of Wisconsin. The opening months of the Walker years set the tone and the pace of the conservative reforms to come. Walker's victory in the recall election hobbled an already weak Democratic Party and steeled the courage of limited government reformers. It all opened the door for legislation that lifted the burden of taxpayers and businesses and brought more liberty to workers. In 2015, Walker signed legislation making Wisconsin the 25th right-to-work state in the nation. As we add tool after tool after tool for our job creators, this is one more big tool to help places like Badger Vida make the case where they can put jobs anywhere around the world that Wisconsin is the right place because Wisconsin, yet again, showing we are open for business means more than just a slogan. It means the way of operating and doing business here in the great state. While the left painted Walker is nothing more than a politician in the pocket of the big corporate interest, those who knew him best said his reform vision was focused on a basic tenet lifting the yoke of government off the shoulders of Wisconsin citizens. Many of the people who have a differing view believe that you measure success by how many people are dependent on the government. Uh, I don't believe that. I believe you measure success in government by just the opposite. You measure it by how many people are no longer dependent on the government, not because we've kicked them out to the streets, not because we've kicked them out to the cold, but rather because we've empowered them uh, to control their own destiny through the dignity of work that comes from a job in the private sector, and that leads to more freedom and more prosperity. Walker expanded on Republican Governor Tommy Thompson's welfare reforms of the 1990s, a kind of W2.0 initiative aimed at lifting people up from government dependence. If you're an able-bodied, working-age adult, and you don't have kids, you're able to work, no disabilities, you're not a senior citizen, if you're an able-bodied, working-age adult without kids, we're going to say, if you want assistance, period, not just food stamps, but you want unemployment as well, we'll give it to you, but we want you to 
ultimately be enrolled in one of our employability pr training programs, and we want you to pass a drug test. But there was more, much more. Hipsch, the former Walker administration chief, says Walker's partnership with the Republican-controlled legislature, the shared focus both branches had in reforming government, made all the difference. And this is really, I think, testament to the, the partnership that the governor had with the legislature, and especially with Robin Voss and with Scott Fitzgerald, and and uh, even his ability to to work with uh, with Mike Ellis and you know some of the real power brokers mm -hmm. in the legislature. Um, coming out of the legislature, as he as Governor Walker did, uh, gave him that ability to know exactly what was going to be important to them and work with them, and that was a huge, I mean, huge up. Uh, leg up that he had over Governor Doyle. Governor Doyle, at, at points, we were wondering if he even just even knew where the legislature was. I mean, it was just there was really very little interest in dealing with anything that was going on in the legislature. And it's evident that when you when you have that relationship that Scott Walker had, you can get those things done. I mean, it, it, and you talk about them, and, and it, you're right. At, at times, we were just focused on Act 10, or or me personally, I was focused on you know 100,000 people walking around the Capitol and and things that were going on. All the while, the, the things you just talked about, like voter ID and so many different things. Uh, that 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 the legislature was working on was occurring, and I really didn't even have a chance to take a look and see what was going on. I was like, after the fact, I said, "Wow, when did they pass that?" Eric Bod, executive director of Americans for Prosperity, Wisconsin, and former legislative staffer, says Act Ten brought conservatives together to take on expanded, limited government reforms. I would attribute a lot of that courage to the galvanization of the conservative uh, Republican caucuses in the legislature during Act 10. I worked at that period of time for the Assembly Speaker, and we had um, a number of very deeply emotional uh, caucuses when we were under siege in the Capitol, where we came together as a, as a unit, as a team, and as a family. And a lot of that energy and those relationships carried forward over the coming years. And suddenly, things that were felt impossible all of a sudden seemed possible. And I think that sense grew even stronger once the legislature took on big third rail items like right to work or prevailing wage repeal, issues that people for decades had said Wisconsin would never ever address, that legislators of either party would never have the courage to take on the unions in such a way, um, to take on some of the big corporations who, who supported those policies, who benefited from those policies. And yet they did. And so once I, I just saw uh, Act 10 was the catalyst and, and right to work and some of these other issues were the fuel that, that continued to fuel that fire. And then suddenly things like eliminating an entire government agency like the GAB, uh, an agency that regulates these legislators, that they that, that legislators are rightfully fearful of um, could be eliminated. And then to keep going, to do things like the RAINS Act, where in, in, in a sense the legislature is taking on more accountability and making themselves more vulnerable to difficult political votes, politicians hate to do that. They never want to do that. But here in Wisconsin, they did it. Um, it all goes back to Act 10 as the catalyst, but it has continued. And, and like I said, a lot of issues that once seemed completely impossible to, to address in Wisconsin they're now quite possible, and, and thankfully the legislature's gotten a lot of them done. Coming up, Walker works with the legislature to turn Wisconsin's economic malaise into a thriving economy, setting an ambitious job creation number that the left would use against him. You're listening to the MacGyver Institute's special presentation of the Walker Years, a legacy of conservative reforms on News Talk 1130 WISM. Remember to listen to the MacGyver Newsmakers podcast, interviews featuring the people who know Scott Walker well at MacGyverInstitute.com. 
You're listening to the MacGyver Institute special presentation, The Walker Years, A Legacy of Conservative Reforms, on News Talk 1130 WISN. I'm Matt Kittle reporting. When Walker took office in January 2011, the economy was in shambles. Wisconsin's unemployment rate peaked at 9.3% in early 2010, post-Great Recession and in the final year of Democrat Jim Doyle's final term. Doyle presided over an economy that had shed nearly 134,000 jobs during his last term. Certainly, the recession had something to say about the state's economic troubles, but so did Doyle's tax hikes and regulation-friendly policies. Today, unemployment is at historic lows, with small businesses looking to expand and mega-high-tech players like Foxconn Technology Group transforming the Badger state economy. For years, all of us, no matter what office we've run for, uh, we talk about wanting to have good-paying, family-supporting jobs. That's really what today's all about. When you think about good-paying, family-supporting jobs, there are things that we sometimes do in office at the local and the state level that are about today or even tomorrow, this is about far into the future. This is about ensuring that our children and our children's children will have those kind of really generational type of opportunities and that those opportunities won't be just limited to the direct jobs here, the 13,000 jobs in this region, but to the 10,000 construction uh, jobs of which just a sample reflected here of the firms that are gonna be involved in that from all across the state to all the thousands of jobs from people who are going to be a part of the supply chain from one end of the state to the other. Walker took a lot of heat from the left and the mainstream media for his initial campaign pledge to create 250,000 jobs by the end of his first term. Yes, he missed the mark, but the state's private sector has added well over 200,000 jobs during Walker's two terms. Shute says the pledge was not overly ambitious, but a stretch goal built on a promise of hard work by a leader committed to helping businesses grow. Would you rather have someone come in and say, hey, look, let's try and get 10,000 jobs this year or wake up every day trying to figure out and reach for what, what obviously was a stretch goal, um, but focused every single day on how you grow the economy? And that was really the underlying message. I mean, as you look back, over uh, the last eight years, you really saw a pronounced focus. When we first came in, there were no jobs, right? So the focus was on jobs and the economy. It was cutting taxes, putting more money back in the hands of individuals and holding the line on spending in government. And it was focused on, and you nailed it, removing barriers for employers to creating more jobs, creating a healthy economy that would allow the private market to thrive. What we saw as we moved through that first term, the focus then was able to pivot. While we never took our eye off the ball on jobs in the economy, then the question became workforce training. Okay, now we have jobs, but we have individuals that aren't the right fit for the appropriate jobs. So what do we need to do next? Now we need to focus on workforce training. And and what was, you know, as you start to see now where the economies move, now we've we're well on our way on workforce training, and it becomes about retention and recruitment of individuals. So it is the, the true cycle of a positive economy and really is an underlying success story. But none of that happens if you don't have a governor at the top that every day is saying to people, what are you doing to remove barriers to incentivize or to help the private market to create the jobs necessary? 
for the economy to thrive and, and keep moving along its cycle. And, and what a remarkable turnaround it has been over those eight years. I don't think that even uh, the most cynical liberal can doubt that turnaround just by the basic numbers and the basic metrics. This is, I think, I think Lieutenant Governor put it best when she said that when you started, when this administration began in 2011, the concentration, the focus was on finding a job for every Wisconsinite. Now it's trying to get, uh, <laughs> you have a question of too many jobs and not enough Wisconsinites. Uh, so th- that in and of itself is a huge accomplishment. Right, right. And, and, and no, that's exactly right. And you look at any sort of qualified kind of economic data metric, right? Whether it's unemployment, historic lows, number of private sector jobs created, historic highs, number of manufacturing jobs, 52,000 over over that period. I, I mean, I, you look at any of them, you look at our labor, uh, labor uh, force uh, market participation rate, and we're, we're up near the highest in the nation. I, I mean, it is, you look at any one of these um, economic metrics, the state is thriving. It's in a great spot. It's in a great position. And, and you know, it really um, goes to the governor. And, and actually, you know, this isn't just all the governor. This is the governor. This is people across the state. It's citizens. Everybody bought in and believed in it. And, and sure, you had, obviously, those who were not supporters of the governor. But at the end of the day, I think if you looked at it and asked anybody, do you think the economy is better? If they're honest about it, they can't help but say, yeah, it's better. Lieutenant Governor Rebecca Clayfish says conservatives had to first change Wisconsin's anti-business image. I spend a lot of time in the lieutenant governor's office on my specific areas of issue advocacy. And, well, in the beginning, undoubtedly, we were focused almost exclusively on economic development because our biggest challenge was trying to find enough jobs for the people. Today, our biggest challenge is trying to find enough qualified people for Mm -hmm. the jobs. And I've prided our office on always staying two steps ahead of our biggest Wisconsin challenge. And so, yes, right away I started making cold calls, and I'm fondly known as the outside sales manager for the Wisconsin Economic Development Mm -hmm. Corporation. But we have changed the way site selectors look at Wisconsin. We have changed the way the international economic development community looks at Wisconsin. We have become a leader in the Midwest. My goodness, Foxconn chose Wisconsin as its destination. It is a mammoth, just changing project that will alter the trajectory of our economy for decades, maybe generations to come. That's exciting stuff. But as soon as we knew we were on a steady economic path. Our office switched to the lion's share of our schedule being focused on workforce development. Often forgotten, AFP's bot says, are the regulatory reforms over the last eight years that took unchecked power out of the hands of unelected bureaucrats. A lot of this got lost in the shuffle, but Mm -hmm. while the Capitol was under siege, Uh, And tens of thousands of angry protesters were there threatening our lives, spitting on us, harassing us, trying to intimidate us into uh, halting progress on collective bargaining reform. The legislature didn't quit working. 
there were a, a multitude of very important reforms uh, that were advanced in those first months of the Walker administration. The two that come to mind as the most significant to me are Act 21, which was his first quintessential regulatory reform. In a nutshell, it said, the bureaucracy doesn't get to just write laws anymore in Wisconsin. They don't get to do whatever they, they please. They have to have explicit and expressed authority from the legislature to, to create rules which are in effect laws. This was a radical sea change for Wisconsin, which for decades, as I had mentioned earlier, we had a reputation in this state uh, and a national reputation of being hostile to business, of having a regulatory uh, environment, particularly on uh, from the DNR, uh, from the Department of Revenue, uh, in addition, that was just hostile to business. Mm-hmm. We, our bureaucrats, did not want employers here. We chased them away. And that began to change with Act 21, where no longer could the bureaucracy run amok. They actually had to have authority from the people, from elected officials. And that was a big change. And, of course, that 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 carried on each uh, legislative session, Governor Walker and the legislature built on that, culminating with the, the passage and signing of the Reins Act in 2017, the first of its kind anywhere in the country. Uh, and that is going to be viewed, I think, by conservatives as perhaps the wisest of reforms uh, that Walker uh, enacted in his final years because it really ties the hands of the Evers administration. Tony Evers is going to have a terribly difficult time doing all the uh, progressive things that he promised to do because the Reins Act limits the ability of his bureaucracy to act. Coming up, Scott Walker's final act. Will the Republican governor's ultimate legacy be? You're listening to the MacGyver Institute's special presentation of The Walker Years, A Legacy of Conservative Reforms, on News Talk 1130, WISN. Remember to listen to the MacGyver Newsmakers podcast, interviews featuring the people who know Scott Walker well at MacGyverInstitute.com. You're listening to the MacGyver Institute's special presentation, The Walker Years, A Legacy of Conservative Reforms, on News Talk 1130 WISN. I'm Matt Kittle reporting. Those four years of serving alongside Governor Walker were undoubtedly the highlight of my career, and I will always look fondly back on those and with great admiration for the job that he did. Mike Hipsch, former DOA secretary under Walker all these years later, sounds amazed by all the governor and Republican lawmakers were able to accomplish. While the liberals tried to stall or stop key reforms through stacks of litigation, the vast majority of the conservative reforms Walker signed into law have survived. Hipsch asserts the conservative revolution of 2011 goes back to the early 1990s when Walker was first elected to the assembly. We had been elected from from really one issue, and that was property taxes. Property taxes went up double digits almost every year for about five-year stretch in the, in the mid and late 80s. And it was something that taxpayers, I mean, we were driving senior citizens out of their homes that they had paid for, you know, had paid off long ago, but they couldn't continue to afford the high property taxes. And these were the issues that really drove us and, and made it clear that we needed some, some, some basic fundamental changes. And it wasn't really until Governor Walker came in and recognized that there was something fundamental that needed to change that he then not only did these things with Act 10, but, but then also sent us out to talk to people. And this is the one thing I, I remember more than anything. I mean, when I, my time in the legislature, I knew that the, the teachers' unions had, had basically locked down most of the health care contracts for, I think, 80% of the school boards around the, around the state. And, yeah. and you're right, they didn't have a seat at the table. 
former teachers had been elected to those school boards. So they were then negotiating with the teachers' union as to what was going to happen. Well, the, the taxpayers had lost any kind of influence. And um, by injecting that back in there, by, by recognizing that the free market needed to have some role in, in healthcare insurance or health, health insurance and in recognizing that the, there, there needed to be some sort of um, some sort of correlation between salaries and and benefits that were, were constantly increasing for our public employees at a time when when especially our taxpayers were really struggling uh, and and salaries were not going up. That was you know that was the perfect time for for the governor to be able to come in and do the things he did. So is that his his number one legacy? That act will be his legacy for his opponents. The 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 strength of Wisconsin will be his legacy, I think, for the taxpayers for for a lifetime. It's really it really has changed the dynamic in Wisconsin to a point that that the taxpayers have a, a, an ability to have a greater influence over what is going to happen with with their salaries, with their with their uh, with their income, and certainly with their government. Walker's loss in November's general election to Democrat Tony Evers most likely puts the brakes to the kind of space-limited government reforms of the past eight years, despite Republican control of the legislature. It may be the end as well to the kind of tax cuts Walker and the Republicans delivered, more than $8 billion worth. That includes eliminating one state tax altogether. Shute says Walker's legacy will be his leadership and how he turned Wisconsin around. Some defined Act 10 as purposely divisive. It, it was a moment in leadership, right? I mean, it was someone who had to make a choice to stand up and say, we got to get the state back on the right course. Um, and eight years later, Act 10 alone saved schools $3 billion. Um, so it, it truly has been a remarkable um, journey and the governor has, has demonstrated tremendous leadership over that period. For State Representative Dale Coyanga, soon to be State Senator Dale Coyanga, the limited government reforms, replicated by a number of states, would not have happened without a strong leader who stood by his vision. State where businesses were leaving, um, there was just one after the other that were leaving the state of Wisconsin, and just really. Uh, we did a lot of legislation and changed a lot of the laws, but I think that the tone at the top was very important. And Governor Walker uh, was remarkable at reaching out to businesses uh, both here and that were out of the state and out of the country towards the end of it and making the pitch that Wisconsin's a great place. Um, he was very effective at that. Eric Bott of Americans for Prosperity says Walker sent a message that pro-growth limited government policies work, a radical change from the past. Uh, you look at it from just about any regard in terms of public policy, and we've seen a transformation here that I don't think is comparable to anything in any other state in this country over the last decade. You look at it uh, from, from a regulatory perspective. Ten years ago, Wisconsin was viewed as the California of the Midwest. In virtually every regard, we over-regulated our industries in the state far beyond what the federal government required, far beyond what any of our neighboring states did. And it cost us jobs, it cost us wage growth, it cost us benefits for our employees. And it meant that for a large segment of the businesses in our economy, they would never even consider locating or expanding in Wisconsin. You look at it from a fiscal prudence or good budgeting standpoint, 
we have to remember, we didn't have balanced budgets. So we had huge deficits, not just the last uh, couple of years of the Doyle administration when we faced the national economic downturn, but every budget cycle under Jim Doyle, going back really to Tommy Thompson, mm-hmm. we had just revolved from budget crisis to budget crisis to budget crisis. And the, the, the Democrat administration's before Governor Walker tried to address those by raising taxes and fees and increasing government spending dramatically, Walker took a different approach. And we've seen that the approach of reform and of tax cuts and of pro-growth policies that grew our revenues and grew our economy actually worked. We've been able to cut taxes, and yet we continually have budget surpluses every budget. That's a radical change for the state. Um, You add on the pension reforms and where we stand as a state in the best position of any state in America in terms of pension solvency, a wonky but critically important issue, an issue that site selectors and businesses actually look at because it's a good way to foreshadow what future tax increases might be on the horizon. Uh, it's, It's hard to look at any major segment of public policy and not see that we've improved substantially. Governor Walker will probably never get this credit, but he is the one who assured that all of our government employees will be okay in their retirements. Isn't it funny that our finances are secure now, one of only three states in the entire United States of America with no unfunded pension liability, while we look over to the East Coast, while we look to Detroit, while we look to municipalities in California and see bankruptcy declarations and see 75-year-old firefighters being told, hey, thanks for running into burning buildings and risking your life for decades on end, knowing that one day you would be okay in retirement, being told, hey, we're going to have to cut your retirement in half. Sorry you're on a fixed income and all. Sorry that you're 75 and you're going to make awful, difficult, challenging choices. But, you know, a bunch of politicians made a bunch of promises and they didn't fully fund them. So sorry. Mm. Ironically, Governor Walker wasn't there when the promises were made to all of our government employees. He wasn't the one making them. But it ends up that over history, Governor Walker will be the one who keeps them. Just days after his defeat to Evers, Walker reflected on his tenure. He said he will be remembered as a reformer. He paused and considered that he may have been too successful on that score. For me, it's been a remarkable opportunity. If people ask, you know, what's the one thing we hope to be remembered for? For me, it's simple. Reform. Uh, we look at the reforms we put in place and the mess that we inherited when we came in here. Um, you know, in terms of, you've heard it before, but it's worth repeating. Uh, beginning of 2010, unemployment's at 9.3%. When we came in, we inherited about a $3.6 billion budget deficit. Uh, we had uh, unfulfilled payments to uh, the state of Minnesota. There was a raid on the transportation fund. There was a raid on the patient compensation fund. Uh, there were all sorts of un, unpaid bills and obligations. And I'm proud that every year we've been governor. We've had not just a balanced budget, but a surplus. I'm proud that we reduced the tax burden on the hardworking people of the state by more than $8 billion, uh, reducing both property and income taxes and eliminating entirely the state's property tax. I'm proud that in the last budget, uh, we were able to include the largest uh, actual dollar investment into education in state's history and continue to make targeted investments in things like fab labs and technical education. And uh, that those are all things we're going to be able to build off going forward. And I'm particularly proud of the fact that because of our reforms, that enabled the people, not the government, but the people of this state, uh, to create more jobs, more opportunities, and higher wages in this state. 
and that uh, we've had now eight months in a row, and I hope that will continue, of record low unemployment. Uh, it's never been lower than it's been over the last eight months prior to this year, and that we have more people working in the state of Wisconsin than ever before. Thank you for listening to the MacGyver Institute special presentation of The Walker Years, a legacy of conservative reforms on News Talk 1130 WISN. I'm Matt Kittle reporting. This special MacGyver Institute presentation was produced by Bill Osmulski, production assistance from Chris Rochester.